And welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And I actually watched some movies this week, Tyler. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I've got I've got five movies to talk about, and so I'm going to leap right in with uh, uh, a movie that I kind of put off. Like, I was getting emails from the publicist, and I was like, this doesn't look that good. And I got like a few, like there were a few email blasts that went out. And eventually I was like, oh, why the hell not? It's like 89 minutes long. Yeah. Now, and is so that I, siren getting closer or further away? I can't tell. I can't tell either. Okay. It's just, uh, it's life in the big city, man. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> um, so I watched the, I guess, the first documentary by uh, acclaimed cult director Alejandro Hodorowsky. Hodorowsky. Oh, yes. It's called okay. Psychomagic, A Healing Art. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. But <laughs> so I've I heard. Think, so if you, if you go into it taking it seriously, you probably will be, won't like it or might even be put off by it. Because the premise is that he, he claims to have invented this therapeutic method called psychomagic, which is basically... Like, uh, you tell me what's wrong with you and I will create a sort of allegorical experience for you to have to work you through this. So like they're one of them, one of the less, uh, one of the more tame ones, but still very silly is that there's a guy who has a stutter Okay. And so in talking to Horowski, Horowski comes to the conclusion that the problem is that this guy is still ha- holding on to his inner child. So we're going to purge that inner child by letting it come all the way to the surface. So he he dresses the this grown man like like an old timey little boy, like with the like suit, like the short pants suit oh my and like gosh, the yes. hat and takes him to Disneyland Paris. And he like runs around Disney and acts like a little kid all day. Um, and then some other shit happens and then it's like, I, I don't stutter anymore. And there's basically, this is just, it's the movie is just a feature length infomercial for psycho magic that it's just a series of testimonials that we, uh, Horowski meets with the person who has a problem. Then we get this ridiculous pageantry of uh, of going through something. Um, a lot of it involves body paint. A lot of it involves massage and nudity and 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 just general weirdness. Uh, and then we get a follow up with them later where they're like, ah, better now. Uh, and it, this just happens over and over again for 90 minutes. But the thing is now I have a theory. I have a okay. theory about why it works. I think what happens is Yodorowsky creates a deeper and more urgent trauma that blows the previous <laughs> one out of their mind. No, basically what it, the movie is incredibly stupid. Psychomagic sounds incredibly <laughs> stupid, but at the end of the day, Hodorowski is going to Hodorowski and yeah. you still, it's still like the stuff that happens is still so nuts that it's fun. Like the idea, like there's a part, I can't remember what he's trying to work through with this guy, but he like 
strips this like it lays this guy he's like in a graveyard or something and he lays him down and he has all these like chopped up like electrical wires that he just like grounds into the guy's chest and they look like little like black snakes okay and it's like it's like i don't i i don't believe that this is actually going to cure this guy's you know emotional hang-ups but this is cool looking and then so I, I felt like once I had let myself, like, I sort of abandoned myself to it. I was like, ah, I'm having fun with this. Um, I did. Th- I mean, asterisk that I do think it's dangerous when he gets into stuff where people are dealing with actual like histories of being abused or people yeah. have actual physical uh, ailments. There's a woman with uh, like throat cancer that he attempts to like send positive energy into or whatever. And it's like that stuff does does raise uh, some ethical questions. Yeah. Um, so I can't give it a full endorsement, but uh, I guess if you like Alejandro Horowski, don't think this is going to be uh, too different just because it's a documentary. It's still full of like weird staged stuff. Do you feel like, you know, I, I do think that sometimes branding and naming is everything. You you could call actual psychotherapy psychomagic and people be like, I don't think this is right. Uh, Like he's (laughs) like, I realize it it sounds, it sounds fun to say, but uh, it's, it's not something I would, even if the, even if the results are 100% effective, it's like, yeah, I still don't want to say yes. One, one patient for psychomagic, please. (laughs) Uh, I feel like, yeah. Because I, I need to be able to explain to my relatives at the end of the day how I'm choosing to treat this thing. And if I say psychomagic, uh, you know, uh, I think they're going to uh, maybe sign some papers so that I'm no longer in control of myself. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Okay, so what else? What else? And then, okay, so next up uh, for me is... Um, a movie that's out on HBO Max. It's called An American Pickle. Ah, yes. Uh, it stars Seth Rogen and Seth Rogen, challenging mm-hmm. dual role. Um, yeah. And the 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 premise is Seth Rogen uh, plays a um, a Jewish Eastern European immigrant to America in the year 1919, um, named Herschel Greenbaum, who gets a job at a pickle factory or a pickle plant or whatever, and a hilarious uh, rat-related workplace accident falls into the vat of pickle brine, which then gets sealed up and accidentally left for 100 years until it's opened and he awakens perfectly preserved in modern-day Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, and is once the scientists are through with him, he is introduced to his only living descendant, uh, Ben Greenbaum, an aspiring app developer, also played by seth rogan and uh wouldn't you know it the the two don't always see eye to eye on uh, on things and i think that's uh, the movie itself is uh it 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 feels like the whole time i'm watching it i'm kind of like it this doesn't feel like it's a real movie like it feels like uh um, the look of it has that sort of funnier died drunk history. Junk history. Sure. I, I thought of junk history, especially in the the early segments that take place in the past. Um, it it has that look of all being kind of fakey and not especially like artfully uh, uh, shot. And so I never got over that impression that like I'm not watching a real movie, which is yeah. weird. But um, you're watching more more of a riff than a movie. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, 
I will give, I, you know, I, when it came time to write, write it on Rotten Tomatoes, I put it as fresh because I mean, it was one of those things. It's like, it's right on the, on the cusp. And mm-hmm. I would guess I was feeling generous. So I, I, I called it fresh. Um, and a lot of it's because of how little of the movie is spent on what you expect out of like a time travel fish out of water type of comedy there's very little like i don't understand cell phones or siri or like um (laughs) like he did like it is funny that herschel like learns what alexa is and like refers to like like alexa you know alexa showed me how to book plane ticket or whatever like that's funny but it doesn't like have the expected comedy a lot of the comedy actually comes from i was reminded of the good place um in that a lot of the comedy is about Herschel marveling at sort of at how values have changed and how like how more complicated the ethics of life sure. are, you know? Yeah. Um because the app that Ben is working on um uh is the idea that you scan a barcode of a product and it gives you based on a certain algorithm this sort of um uh uh what's the word I'm looking for? the overall um, ethics of the company that made that product. Like what sure, is their, sure. what are their labor, part, labor policies? What is their carbon footprint and stuff like that? And like to someone like Herschel Greenbaum, who, you know, lived in this fic- fictional Eastern European country, uh, digging ditches for like one wooden coin a week. Like that's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> and like, there's some good comedy that comes out of, out of that. And there's some really good, I, Seth Rogen, I think is uh, a really strong actor, a, a stronger actor than sometimes we think he is because, yeah. um, cause he's, he's playing, he's playing both parts and, and, um, if you if you think about how like his like most good actors and especially good comedic actors he he has a persona and you can see elements of that in in both you know uh, in, in both the characters herschel sort of like uh <laughs> herschel marveling at uh a so like ben has a soda stream where you can make your own seltzer inside your kitchen <laughs> and like herschel's delight at like bubbles on his tongue is like that's very that's very very seth rogan uh but also in its own way uh ben's uh sort of uh, social anxiety is very seth rogan and, and you think about how he can play like kind of broy characters and also play nebuchy characters and there's like the germ of of the seth roganness is still in there but he he can he can employ it in a lot of different ways and you've seen that in a lot of different different movies from um from uh you know the comedies that he's known for to things like uh like steve jobs uh and also it's a one thing i always think of it's a very brief it's only a one scene appearance but do you remember when he was on eastbound and down for one scene i don't know how much of eastbound and down you watch i only watched like two episodes of it i need oh, to get okay back yeah he's it. in like the third season um or in just one scene of the third season and it's a great performance and i think about it a lot weirdly for that one scene uh so I, there's a lot to recommend, I think, about American uh, American Pickle in terms of what it does with its comedy. I wish it looked and felt like more like a movie. I also think there's a section in the middle where um, the sort of society and the culture, like, reacting to Herschel and him, like, joining Twitter and stuff, it feels a little bit like... <laughs> 
point making a little bit too much, yeah. you know? Um, but, uh, it luckily gets over that. Um, so yeah, more, more good than bad. If you have HBO max, you know, why not watch it? And if you have HBO max and you don't have fucking Roku, Roku, or Amazon Fire Stick because you still can't watch HBO Max on those. Really? Uh, yeah. If they don't, uh, uh, I'm, I'm planning on hopefully sometime soon uh, getting a UHD TV. At which point I was going to get it because you need a UHD Roku to go with that. Right. And I think I will switch to something else like an Apple TV or something at that point. Yeah. Because HBO Max and Peacock aren't aren't on Roku and it's fucked up. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. Like when you already have the Zoom of uh, of streaming boxes, I feel like you want to try and bring as much stuff in as possible. Wait, which or one let's is say, the Zoom? Roku is Roku. Oh yeah. Compared to what? Compared compared to Apple TV. See, I think I I I'm so out of the loop. I like uh, I didn't realize Apple TV was as popular as it is. I thought like. I thought most people had Roku's just because I think I heard of Roku first. Maybe. Yeah, I had. A, yeah, I had a Roku first. So, like, I do think the Roku was like first to the first to the party. Uh, but then Apple came along, and it's like, okay, you don't actually need Apple products to make this work, and all that sort of thing. And so, um, okay. so like, yeah, with one or two exceptions, like everybody I know has uh, an apple tv and so i don't mean to make fun of roku but it does feel like yeah unless you unless you definitely want to be left behind like you got to start uh working with these yeah and uh, that's what's going to happen like if i yeah. um if this lasts much longer and if i get a new tv i'm definitely switching to apple tv uh okay so my first film is the 2013 ron howard movie rush which uh i <laughs> <laughs> so, what's going on over there i just this only matters to me okay um i accidentally said the movies in the different order than i watched them and that bothered Ooh, me because yes. i like to go through the movie journal in the order that i watch the movies um and i skipped one in between uh uh psycho magic and an american pickle but i'll talk about it next but it's gonna irk me i i know it will <laughs> <laughs> Someday we really look, obviously I'm not in, in any place to judge people's uh, issues, but I feel like you and I, we, if we really sit down and talk for like 16 straight hours, I feel like we'll be able to work out most of our individual issues and maybe our collective ones as well. Uh, okay. So, uh, Ron Howard's rush. Have you seen it? Uh, no, I did not see that. I, you know, like, like so many other movies, it's one of those where I wanted to see it in the moment. I had heard really good things about it. And, uh, and then it just came like, I, I, it just went past me. And before you know it, uh, it's been several years. Uh, but it, I saw that it was on, I believe HBO max and I, and I had some time a few days ago and I thought, Oh, you know what? I will take advantage of this right now. And I'm certainly happy that I did. Um, all the good things that I had heard about it uh, are true. I would say it is, you know, I, I feel like amongst, uh, you know, film critics, specifically ones that are, that are big uh, auteurists. I feel like Ron Howard is, is not really championed as a really solid director whose films are like worthy of study, but you look at something like rush and 
you know, I don't think of Ron Howard as like an action director. And yet we're dealing with formula one racing. Mm -hmm. It's flying by and he has such a good handle on telling the personal story of what these drivers are dealing with. Uh, while also capturing the general atmosphere of watching a race, both from the pit or from the crowd or whatever it is. And he really, it's a really transportive film. And I really, well, think I about really he appreciate made, it. Um, uh, he made Backdraft as well, which I also, which I think is a yeah. clunky movie, but similar thing, not an action movie, but those yeah. firefighting scenes are really immediate and really urgent and really, uh, enveloping. And when, when you're in the thick of the emergency of Apollo 13, like he mm -hmm. can do that really well. Like he just, he is able, he is that standard journeyman director that can adapt his style to whatever the, whatever the film requires. And Rush obviously requires a very specific kind of editing. But beyond that, it's written by Peter Morgan, who is, who's a, a writer that I tend to like because he's not someone that I think I feel like he doesn't compromise for the sake of the audience. So like with Rush, you have the true story of James Hunt and Nikki Lauda, who were these two uh, drivers that had a rivalry. And, but you can also tell there's a very healthy respect between these two men. And I feel like a lesser movie would have tried to imbue them like, ah, see, they're developing a friendship over time. And... I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't describe it as that. Like they really don't care much for one another, but they see the value of the other person's role in their lives. Like I wouldn't be as good at what I'm doing if not for this guy. And they both acknowledge that. So they don't necessarily like each other and they aren't friends, but they recognize like you've made me better. I owe what I am to you partially. And and out of that comes a type of affection, but not necessarily a friendship. And that is a hard road to, that is a hard line to walk. And I think Ron Howard and Peter Morgan, and then the stars, um, Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Bruhl, I think they do a great job with it. Um, you know, uh, I like that I, Daniel Bruhl. I do too. He's I who I had for supporting actor that year for Rush. And I got plenty you mean of, for, uh, the, for our, for, uh, for fantasy our Oscar, uh, yeah. award season. Yes. And we got to figure got, out what, what we're going to do this year. Yes, that's true. I mean, I guess we still, well, that's, that's off my conversation. Cause yeah, I don't think I ever even thought about it, but now as we're getting close well, to about it a lot. the fall. Um, but yeah. And so he was up for, he, he was not nominated for an Oscar for a supporting actor, but he got plenty of other stuff, critics awards, golden globe nomination, that sort of thing. And it's easy to see why it is a very specific type of performance. Um, and one that, that requires him to do a certain type of accent to carry himself a certain way. At, at some point he has to have heavy makeup on because the character was in a bad accident. Um, but on top of that, he also has to play a character who is not likable and he knows it and he's really okay with it. Uh, it's, 
I wouldn't say it's a supporting character. I, I think it's a co-lead. Um, but he really not to not to diminish Chris Hemsworth, but uh, but I do think that Daniel Bruhl is playing like the role of a lifetime uh, in this film. And I highly I highly recommend it. I think most people would like it. It's, it is, you know, in many ways, a hard R-rated movie about two guys that are not always likable and don't even really like each other and maybe don't like themselves that much. But they have this love of this thing. They have a love of this thing and they share that with each other and they make each other better as a result. And it's uh, there's a complexity to the film that I really was not expecting and really appreciate. Like if you look at this versus something like Ford versus Ferrari, which is a movie that I do like, but that's a film that I think is is constantly trying to accommodate you, the audience. Whereas this one is like, if you like these guys, if you don't, we don't really care. We're telling a story mm. here. Um, so I, I I highly recommend it. Uh, all right. Next up, uh, this is the one that I actually watched after Psycho Magic. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. And- you, you know what? We've gone past it. You can't <laughs> talk about it now. Uh, no, I want to talk about this one because I, uh, I think I might have a new worst movie of 2020 oh fun um and that's david ayer's the tax collector okay um, a film i had not heard of until i saw your review pop up on the website uh man and, that, and that's a weird thing too right because david ayer is like a big name studio director yeah. right yeah and that that's part of the, the whole time watching this movie and being like this feels like the movie you that like this feels like a movie from 15 to 20 years after the peak of his like success not i don't know what artistic success i don't really know how the only other movie of his i've seen that he directed was uh fury which is uh good for about an hour hour and 10 minutes um uh but um uh this movie seems so uh, cheap and like a bad echo like david ayer like a bad echo of his own style and his own uh, interests it's like um or a ripoff almost like it's clearly you know it's uh you know i haven't seen his uh because he wrote training day and based on that off of that he made street kings and is it called harsh harsh times is that the harsh times yeah yeah with yeah uh, is that Uh, with uh is it christian bale christian bale yeah yeah yeah. Um, okay uh and this is definitely in that milieu it's back in the sort of la street crime um uh setting but uh it's just so massively stupid and here's the thing i i I think i've talked said more than once in this podcast before that on paper a lot of training day is actually massively stupid too but i think antoine fuqua and denzel washington and ethan hawk really really bring a lot um to to that movie um but even compared to that tax collector is really stupid nothing it almost feels impressive it, <laughs> like i was almost counterintuitively i was almost surprised by how predictable the movie was if that makes sense yeah. like it 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 kept taking the most obvious and least dramatically interesting route at every point and that's starting from a point that's stupid and that it has this premise that like uh, the lead, um, his name, uh, the actor's name is Bobby Soto, and his uh, best buddy, coworker slash enforcer named Creeper, played by Shia LaBeouf, um, are collectors for like 
it reminds, do you remember there was the Squad Brothers had that web series called Layers that were Nick yes. Kroll. Nick Kroll played an agent who represented other agents. Yeah. The, so they're a so Man, they that work, was a good show. It really was. They work for a I guess a gang that taxes the other gangs. So in order to like be a gang in Los Angeles, you have to pay a tax to this Ur gang. I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Um, it, it seems like uh, uh, the nature of people who form their own gang is not people who are going to like fall in line to pay their tax. I don't know. Right. Um, so that doesn't make sense to begin with. And then the whole premise is that the, their gang leader gets challenged by, there's a new young, uh, blood in town and he's gonna, and they have to whatever fight him. I don't know. It's stupid. Um, (laughs) all of it's terrible. All of it makes the worst decisions, the worst, like, like tough guy emoting type of, uh, uh, you know, uh, tattoo of a tear type of, uh, bullshit, brooding bullshit. Um, and I just, I, I spent the whole movie hating it. It looked cheap. It felt undercooked. Um, most of the cast is, is bad. Uh, including George Lopez. I will say, I feel bad for a movie that it's one selling point in our sort of like current climate is how, big a role and how how varied a role um latinx actors have in this movie so i feel bad saying that far and away by far the best thing about the movie is shia labeouf um because he he's just he's become an actor that like he makes everything he's in better because he is like absurd almost psychopathically committed um, and, and and there's an intensity to his screen presence that uh you you can't find in just any in just any actor. Yeah. Um he reportedly got a real full chest tattoo for this role, which is not only is that crazy for a role in a movie like this, also you only see his chest for a like a split second in one scene. He's been most of his thing is that this is a guy who is like the brutal enforcer henchman type, except he wears suits and dresses nice all the time. So he spends the entire movie, like a three piece suit, except one scene, you barely kind of see his chest. And apparently he got a full chest tattoo in real life for that scene. Um, he has prosthetics to make it look like he has cauliflower ears. Um, it's like, it's, it's such an intense presence. Um, and in service of something so, undeserving of that commitment that well, there, uh, it's almost like a p- bit of performance art on its own. Well, they're certainly playing up the tattoo and the publicity photos. I'll tell you that. Um, looking at, IM, at IMDB here. So, you know, I like the idea that he's so committed that he got the tattoo for the publicity photos. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, okay. Sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to turn the spotlight on you, Tyler, because I've said before, you know, I don't like when you look up the movie I'm talking about while I'm talking about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yet you keep doing it. Like, come on this journey with me. I am telling <laughs> you about the movie. That's true. You, you know, know what, where, where it came about, what happened was I'm listening to you and then I'm thinking of David Ayer and I wanted to make sure that I got like his filmography in my mind okay. and came to real. And in looking at his filmography, I was just thinking that like, he's a guy who is clearly obsessed. This is not a bad thing. He's clearly obsessed with masculinity and male relationships. 
because like, oh, um, what i was going to say might be a bad thing is he's also clearly obsessed with like chicano gang culture in los angeles and i think sure. that sometimes leads him to glorify negative stereotypes yeah um that's yeah but, probably. uh yeah i thought that's where you were going but yeah no what you're saying is yeah that's that's clearly a thing with him yeah and it's and i find that interesting um and i definitely as you know that's it's a it's a it's an interest of mine, uh, you know, depictions of masculinity in film, especially as mas- the, the definition of masculinity starts to change and be questioned over time. And so like any director who sort of less explores it and more tries to cling to like an, an older definition of it is somebody that I'm always interested in. And, and but I also am, am genuinely interested in, in any director that wants to explore um, like male friendship, especially in intense situations. So, so obviously like cops, soldiers, criminals, like people, you know, it's not like just buddies, you know, he's not going to make super bad. Uh, He makes movies about people that are in a rough situation. So, so that's, I was looking it up for, for that purpose, just based on what you were talking about. I was like, okay, well that sounds familiar. And then I, in looking it up, I realized like, oh shit. Yeah. Like as a director and as a writer, you know, you get stuff like, Fast and I mean, he wrote U five seven one Fast and Furious Training Day Dark Blue SWAT. Like before he became a director, he's writing this stuff about soldiers in a confined place, cops, yeah. uh, that sort of thing. So it's even if I I would say by and large don't really care for his sensibilities, it's still always interesting when you can see such a clear pattern right. uh, yeah. in yeah. in his stuff. So that's interesting. Um, and then I never saw Sabotage, but I was kind of interested in it, the thing with uh, Schwarzenegger. But anyway. Okay. Uh, okay. okay. So just in the future, just try to, like I said. Be present. Or be my surrogate for the audience. Okay. Right? I'm talking to you, but I'm really talking to the audience, but I need you to pretend to be the audience. Like I'm saying, come on the journey with me. I think it's interesting that you don't think the audience is looking shit up. Uh, I think I am absolutely being a surrogate for the audience and doing this. That's interesting because I don't like, usually the times, the parts of my life where I am listening to a podcast, I am in a place where I can't, I'm usually driving. Yeah, that's true. Walking the dog. Like I'm not, I'm not sitting in front of a computer listening that's to a true. podcast. So I'm, I'm yeah. not usually looking things up while I'm listening to podcasts. Yeah. The, and that's the thing is like when I'm, when I'm, on those rare occasions when I do listen to podcasts anymore, which is, which doesn't happen very often, but like if I'm listening during my commute, I am often frustrated. Cause like it, cause my mind is going and I'm, and I have questions and they're questions that don't necessarily have definitive answers. It's more like, I want to further explore this while this is happening, like looking up the filmography of the director right. to see if the thoughts that I'm having, if I should continue going down that path. Uh, and then it's like, well, I'm driving. I can't do that though. If I'm being honest, sometimes I still do. Okay. Uh, so, so, you know, you're going to see a police report someday of this guy just needed to know about, uh, this, uh, random supporting actors filmography. Um, okay. How, uh, by the way, I know like sometimes it's the internet has been around so long that I'm, used to it and then every once in a while i will will think about like the internet is crazy man like (laughs) i had i was listening to a bunch of like metallica songs the other day okay and 
a song that I had forgotten existed came up, which is the Metallica song "I Disappear," which they wrote uh, for the Mission Impossible Two soundtrack. And I was oh, wow. like, I forget, like, I, I forgot this song existed. I forgot they did that, and I had this thought. I was like, I wonder, I wonder when was the last time they played this song in a concert? And I got the answer in like 10 seconds, yeah. August of 2013 in Tokyo. Uh, like how crazy it is that I can, the crazy <laughs> is it that I can have that thought and have it answered that quickly. Well, that is, that is definitely uh, a common theme amongst like people who, who talk, who think about the internet as, as a resource, which on one hand, it's like, it's amazing that you can, cause essentially you had a question and then you got an answer, which in itself is, is a form of education. It's like a person's ability to educate themselves about something. You know, I can't tell you how many, uh, like back when I, back when I was, a, did photo editing, like every once in a while, there'd be a certain thing I want. I knew I wanted to do it, but I didn't exactly know how, well, then I just pull up a YouTube tutorial. Like I, I didn't, I wouldn't have had to like puzzle it out completely. Um, nor would I have had to wait for someone to explain it to me, nor would I have to, would I have to say like, well, I guess I'm just not doing that. Instead, I found a way to, to, I found an answer immediately, you know, and that's very exciting. But then I remember, you know, Louis CK had that bit about like, you know, we pull out our phones like when we're bored, but it's also, and I think it might've been, it might've been Bill Bar, Bill Burr who talked about like, being in a place of just being in a place of ignorance where you just like, you have a question and you try to remember it and then you don't remember it. And you're just in this place of like, well, I guess I'm limited. I guess I'm a limited person. I can't think of everything all the time. And you know what? That's okay. Um, and, uh, same as like, like, Oh, I'm bored for two seconds. So you know what? I think I'll just play a game on my phone or look up something or whatever. And uh, so like, I'm not opposed to it, to any of that. I like the internet, our entire, my entire uh, life is basically a function of the internet, but, uh, but it is that weird thing where like, in in our lifetime, you know, uh, we remember a time when that this wasn't the case so that still having this moment of this is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, it is a big part of it. So, um, okay. Yeah. At some point, I think it would be fun to just, uh, to just like keep track of every random thing I've looked up in a week and you do the same. And we do an entire episode about, and it's not movie related, although there will be, that will, that, that will be heavily in the mix. Uh, but just like, this is what I've been looking up. What about you? Yeah. Um, like if I look at my Wikipedia history, I look like a fucking mental patient. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, okay. So uh, my next movie is a rewatch, but it's been a long time, uh, long time since I saw it. And that is the 1961 Disney film, 101 Dalmatians. Uh, I was not raised with this movie. Uh, I did not, you know, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, and and a handful of other Disney movies were the ones that I watched over and over. Uh, I think I first saw this when I was probably in my early teens or maybe, you know, maybe I was 10 and I thought it was good. You know, I thought it was interesting, but uh, it's something that as I've gotten older, when I think back on it, it's like, it's almost subversive, this movie. Like if you're familiar with Disney history, 
you know how character, you know, the, the way characters are designed, you know, the way, well, you know, the way the whole film is designed visually and 101 Dalmatians really goes against that. I mean, they have backgrounds where it looks like, it looks like an old comic book where sometimes there's the outline of the, of the building, but then, and it's all like one uniform color, but it's a little off. Like it's sort of like outside the lines, like, like what we talked about with, uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. So it looks like it's printed wrong. Um, and then the, the characters themselves, like there's such an emphasis on caricature, you know, even our, our human main characters, uh, are sort of boiled down to their essence visually. And then you get characters like Cruella DeVille and Horace and Jasper, uh, who I, w- I was talking with, I think this came about because I was talking with a friend of the show, Jason Eakin, who was showing this to his son, who is young, um, and his son got actually a little bit scared um, of Cruella DeVille and of Horace and Jasper. And I was like, yeah, scared of Horace and Jasper, like they're sort of comedic thugs. But then you look at them and you realize like, yeah, but visually they're so exaggerated that if you're a kid just just looking at them and watching them move it's just not what you're used to in life and in a lot of other animated movies and so in watching it i i came to really there's a certain there's just a certain visual and tonal darkness to the film even if at the core there's like this these dog parents that like are trying to get their puppies back but even just like the stuff that the characters are watching on TV seems kind of, kind of dark. And I don't know, it's, it's an odd film that is often amusing um, and often quite visually beautiful in its own way with some really memorable sequences. But as I watch it, it's like, yeah, this is, this is a, it's a strange movie. And because of the, you know, the iconic nature of Cruella de Vil, especially it has, it has, uh, you know, hung in there, but I could, I, if I were like a Disney purist, you know, at at the time I could see myself hating 101 Dalmatians. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Walt Disney himself was not super thrilled. Uh, Or Hmm. maybe was he still, when did he die? See, now I'm, now I'm, I have a question. It might not have been, it might've been someone in the Disney family, not Walt Disney himself. I don't remember when he actually died. Hang on. I'm looking it up. And what, what year is 101 Dalmatians? 61. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. So he died at 66. And so, uh, so yeah. Okay. So that was correct. Yeah. So he didn't really like the design of it because it doesn't look very magical. In fact, it often at times looks a little bit dirty um, as, as these characters drive these gross cars and that kind of thing. Uh, it's a really great movie in a lot of ways. Uh, and it, but it's something that as I've gotten older, I have more respect for what it was willing to do and the risks that it was willing to take. Uh, you know, because Disney, I mean, certainly now it's monolithic, but at the time, uh, it had a very specific brand, uh, certainly as far as its animated movies and 101 Dalmatians, at least from a visual sense, really didn't stick with that brand, which was, uh, you know, could have been, could have uh, spelled trouble for them. And so I really respect the directors of the movie for making this film the way they did. 
All right. Uh, next up for me, uh, a full. Well, I'm glad I. Uh, in retrospect, I'm kind of glad that I uh, moved the tax collector to where it was because now I get to do a full 180 and sure. talk about a movie that I loved, and that is Amy Simon's "She Dies Tomorrow." Mm-hmm. Um, first off, I mean the 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 cast of this movie. I I, I knew that Caitlin Child was in it. And she's like a, a indie film rock star. She's always. Uh, uh, always great, always a, a, a welcome presence. But you've got uh, Jane Adams and Chris Messina and Katie Azelton and hmm. Tunde Adabimpe and Kentucker Audley. And you've got some more uh, almost cameos that I won't even even ruin. Um, and the the story of the movie is that Caitlin Child plays a woman who uh, is a... Uh, recovering alcoholic who falls off the wagon and when her friend jane adams uh she's not playing herself the character's name is jane uh comes to see if she's okay caitlin child tells her i'm going to die tomorrow i uh i don't just feel or think i know that i'm going to die tomorrow Hmm. and at first jane adams is like that's you know you're you're drunk you don't know that whatever but then shortly after jane adams leaves suddenly she becomes sure she's going to die tomorrow Hmm. And then she goes to be with her brother and his wife and tells them, and then they become sure they're going to die. It beca- it's like an It Follows type of like yeah. contagious dread uh, thing. Or, that or like the nightmare. You hear about it with uh, sleep paralysis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and, and so the movie is uh, in some ways very depressing and bleak. It's all about people facing their demise. But also Amy Simons, you know, has her comedy bona fides uh in, in in her in her roots in her past the movie is also absurdly funny uh, a, a lot of the time just just kind of ridiculous um uh, <laughs> there's, uh, i laugh there's one character um i won't say who plays uh him he's a, a horror director um who's like like a goofy guy and and is like uh you know trying to do a business transaction whatever, and then she tells him no i'm I'm going to die tomorrow. And he just goes like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it goes on forever. And there's, there's all kinds of silly stuff in it, but also the movie is absolutely beautiful. Um, in a, in a kind of sickly, like shimmery, uh, uh, neon lights in the nighttime, um, type of way. There is some horror to it. There's, um, there's this thing where, it's not happening within the movie's reality, but whenever someone undergoes the realization they're going to die tomorrow or whatever, there's like these flashing red and blue lights that like flash on their face. And there's something about the way that, that a person, and and you've seen it. If you ever like looked in a mirror in in a haunted house that has like strobe lights or whatever, like the way that, a sudden change in the quality or color or direction of light can completely change a person's face. Even when they're not doing anything to change their face is used to really creepy effect, uh, during, during those, those sequences. Um, I forget. There's something else I was going to say. Oh, the music. Um, uh, yeah. Also every sort of realization is accompanied by, um, uh, this swell of Mozart's Requiem, but like a, a sort of with a, this like droney 
synthesizer uh, sound uh, uh, underneath it, which my dog hated, by the way. Um, <laughs> my uh, my dog is she's a skittish dog and anytime a movie has it's not loud sound so much as like low sounds anything that like makes sure. things sort of like rumble a little bit she hates it and so she was uh like cuddling up to me and shaking during this movie which i felt bad about um but uh uh how effective it is as a scary movie in addition to being a, a weird conceptual comedy as well um yeah absolutely loved it and very highly recommend it well, it's probably too late for them to change their marketing campaign, but they could do, you know, like so scary, it will terrify man and beast alike. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, so speaking of scary, and this is sort of a, uh, an, a companion to, to last week. Uh, I watched another hammer movie. I watched, I watched uh, taste the blood of Dracula. Um, <laughs> Which uh, oh, it's like it's like yeah, I bet that I bet it doesn't taste super great, um, but uh, oh boy, I loved it. I, I there's so much that I like about it from a from a story standpoint, from a, a thematic standpoint. Uh, it's 1970, so now we're getting a little bit more risque. You see, like there's actual nudity in in this one. It's there's a certain level of of trashiness uh, and. And I kind of appreciate that, but the story uh, picks up exactly where the previous film left off in which uh, Roy Kinnear, who you would know as Mr. Salt from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, um, who also I discovered is, uh, was uh, Rory Kinnear's father. Oh, okay. Um, and it, and it's, it's the kind of thing that like, last name Kinnear, both British. One is Roy, one is Rory. Oh, also they look exactly alike. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's just, it's just something that didn't occur to me. But anyway, uh, so the story, I really, I really like it. It's, it's such a neat idea where you see this, uh, this young woman and she's in, you know, it's, uh, she's in love with, uh, with this young man, but her father forbids it because like, like, Oh, it, because he's very pious and very religious. Uh, and he says like, you're not to see that man anymore. Like you're a young woman, uh, you know, who's reached, reached sexual maturity. So there's going to be all kinds of temptation. And then he goes out with his two friends to the local whorehouse where they go all the time. Uh, because he, he is, uh, and he see, he seems to feel no, sense of like conflict in this it really is just this idea of like he is at his core just like his friends uh they're all rich and older and bored and so they seem to be looking for anything that can like shake them out of their complacency or or uh whatever mm. and so then when a guy comes along who may or may not have sold his soul to Satan uh, and they hear about, they're like, Oh, this guy seems like a cool guy to hang out with. And so they start hanging out with him. And then he says, he says, well, would you be willing to sell your soul to Satan? And they're like, um, eh, maybe <laughs> like, they just, <laughs> like most, even the most bored person probably would say I'm leaning towards no, but these guys are really considering it. And then along the way, and by this time, you know, Dracula has, has been killed, but this, this, uh, you know, Satan worshiper, whatever it is, uh, 
the practicer of the, you know, pra- uh, practitioner of the black arts, he, uh, he has found like a, a vial of, of Dracula's blood, but it's like powder. And so he mixes his blood with Dracula's uh, powder blood and then says, here, drink it. He never says taste the blood of Dracula, but that's the idea. And, uh, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but suffice to say, Dracula comes back. Um, and, I think I just more so than the previous film where the story wasn't, wasn't very specific. This one is very specific to these men, to their goals, to their motivations. Uh, It is a film that I, I think is probably a little bit um, cynical about those who would, uh, who would appear to be respectable. Um, but uh, I mean, it, it might actually say that like the more respectable you are, the more likely you are to get bored by that and maybe entertain the notion of um, of hedonism and that sort of thing while still requiring respectability of other people. Um, it really is just a, a fascinating movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, I still have certain issues with the way Hammer Horror directs Dracula or how it shoots Dracula. It is not... It is not uh, Christopher Lee's fault, but it it seems to treat him as more of a as a more of a nuisance than as this otherworldly uh, being of pure evil, and uh, and I feel like his performance is is solid, but it just feels like they just keep shooting him in like a medium shot, or and or like a, a medium wide shot. And it's like what what are you doing, like. At the, how about an, how, at the very least, how about an upward angle? So he looks like he's at least <laughs> looming over me, but it's, I feel like he's just, <laughs> you know, it's the, the way that I could best sum it up is the way hammer horror shoots Dracula. It's like, he's just over there <laughs> and that's it. And that's not that scary of a phrase. Um, and, uh, but I still, but obviously the, the, the atmosphere is still really fun and the art direction. And in this case, the characters and the acting and uh, boy, I I've seen, I've now seen three of the hammer Dracula movies. God knows there are several more. Um, and I think this one's my favorite actually uh, because of, of okay. all of that. So I, uh, I really recommend it. All right. Finally for me, uh, Tyler, if you, you like movies that are about masculinity, Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you enjoyed uh, last year's Cold Pursuit. I did. I, th- I think you will like Hans Peter Mullen's uh, new film, um, Back to, uh, it's a Swedish, uh, or I guess he's a Norwegian director, right? Is that right? But this movie... Is he Norwegian? Place, I think he's Norwegian, and this yeah. movie takes place, I guess, largely in, in Norway, but stars Stellan Skarsgård, who was Sweden, who was sure. Swedish. Um uh, I, it's called Out Stealing Horses, and I think you really like it, even though it's a it's a bit uh, self critical of of masculinity in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, in the I was I want to say present day story, but it actually takes place in 90, 1999. In the more recent story, um, Stellan Skarsgård plays a man whose uh, wife has recently died in a car crash, and so just to get away from everything, he's bought a place in remote Norway. Um, and then through narration and, and flashbacks, we get like the, what ends up becoming the main story, which is the summer he spent when he was 15 with his father in the same general area of, uh, of Norway. 
um, in, in which he, you know, th- some things happened. He, uh, he met a friend in town, but also the main story wise, the main thing that happens is that both he and his father, um, develop feelings for the same, like, uh, woman who lives on a neighboring farm or whatever. Um, that that's the plot as as uh, as it were uh but that's not really what's most uh interesting to me uh about the movie is that all i know of hans peter moland is cold pursuit i never even saw in order of disappearance which cold pursuit right. was a remake of but um while that movie is a very cold pursuit is a very very dark comedy uh Outstealing Horses is not a comedy, but it's still often just as pessimistic uh, sure. in a way. Um, uh, the, it, it depicts the world as a cruel place um, where where terrible things uh, happen to people all the time, and people just you know the people who survived it just move on with their lives. Um, but uh, what really fascinated me most about the movie is, uh, and this goes back to what the to the title out stealing horses um as we learn in the movie that's not it's not literal out stealing horses is a sort of game that the young the 15 year old and a neighbor uh, like a local boy um come up with um and um you know the game itself is 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 harmless but it's sort of it, it calling the movie that focusing on this bit of playing pretend i think colors the movie's whole idea of maleness or at least of these men as stunted as not ever actually becoming adults it's a coming of age movie about someone who never truly grew up sure um and and playing pretend is the closest that the older, the Stellan Skarsgård uh, uh, version of the character could ever come to being a real like husband, father member of society. Um, mm. uh, um, so it's a, it's a movie about men who are emotionally closed off and self-interested uh, and um, immature. Um, and yet at the same time, it's also, uh, a movie that is very pastoral in a very sort of beautiful way. It's um, I know obviously we're not seeing anything on the big screen these days, but if you have a big TV and a good sound system, this movie would actually be great for it. There's lots of like, you know, beautiful shots of trees and rivers and there's rushing water and there's, you know, trees falling over. And like, it's a, um, it's a surprisingly for for a movie that everything I've described about it seems so internalized, it's a surprisingly filmic cinematic movie. Um, I do think the, the, the the last couple scenes get a little bit sort of, the movie sort of disappears up its own ass a little bit and gets a little, uh, brooding, uh, overly brooding, but, um, I definitely think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's worth watching. And I think Hans Petter Molen is, um, a really, uh, assured filmmaker.